I'll give you a quick story about why I'm here today, and one of the main reasons is because of this guy right here. Uh, Mike and I got a chance to meet, work together. I sent him some programming on the road, and then he was the one who actually brought me out to hang out, meet Dylan Francis in the first place. We would work out on the road. We got Dylan to hop in, and that was my first kind of bit of celebrity training, and since then, he's always been my biggest advocate. So I'm absolutely honored, and if you are one of our three listeners that listen to this, um, it is Mike to thank for that, that we even have I've gotten to this point to have this platform to people care about the training that we're doing is because of Mike vouching for me. So first of all, Mike, thank you. You're welcome. Second of all, Mike, how are you? I'm doing good. Doing good. Beautiful Boston. First time. So I can, <laughs> I mean, I can list off Mike's accolades for hours, but instead we talked about Mike's first time in Boston. It's not. He's born and raised here. And he's doing some incredible things, has done some incredible things, is going to do even more incredible things, but wasn't always that way. Mike, tell us about your childhood. <laughs> okay. Um, how long do we have? Give as long as you want, man. <laughs> um, yeah, I grew up in a town called Natick, Massachusetts, uh, 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes west of Boston. I lived there through freshman year of high school, and then I moved to a town called Taunton, Massachusetts, which is more uh, on the southeast corridor. And I graduated a high school in that area um, in a town called Easton, Massachusetts. Um, yeah, I grew up kind of being a degenerate and didn't have a lot of rules and kind of figuring out my own path through that. And um, yeah, got involved with the local music scene, the local punk and hardcore scene, uh, where I really met, you know, my strong group of friends that are some of my best friends to this day. And then, um, yeah, from, uh, do, do we circle this back to fitness or just talk? It doesn't matter. Okay, we can cool. talk zero about um, fitness. Yeah. And then like, I've always been a sports player. I played lacrosse for 11 years. I almost went to college for lacrosse. Um, even though I was like the emo kid on the team with dyed hair, um, it was always a passion of mine. But I realized music and live shows were more of a passion to me. So I started to take that serious, tried out college for a little bit. Um, and then I started to get some opportunities to go on the road and start touring with some of my friends. Um, my first tour was with a band from the North Shore of Massachusetts called The Carrier. They were a hardcore band, and we would run amok and steal a bunch of groceries from grocery stores to get to the next city and sleep in basement floors. And um, then I worked for a band from uh, New Hampshire called Our Last Night, and th that was the first band that took me on the tour or took me on tour that had like management and had agents and uh, took me all around the U.S. versus just up and down the East Coast. Um, I want to pause you for a second. What drew you to the hardcore scene? Was it the music? Was it the community? Was it the people? Was it what they were doing? Like, how did you get involved in that? Because I'm always curious because I feel like everyone's story is a little bit different with that. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I don't know. It's tough to like kind of recall what attracted me to it. I think I just liked, you know, now, I guess, being in hindsight, um, subculture was always attractive to me whether it was um art or spray painting or you know stuff like that and or subculture and music being you know 
these seeing these shows where they're incredibly violent, but yet everybody looks out for each other at the same way. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I just kind of like stumbled into it. Um, even starting in middle school, when I started to get introduced to different types of music, um, I definitely felt like there was just a overall attraction to this, you know, unique style of music. And, you know, a lot of times with the hardcore comes like the straight edge mm -hmm. and that stuff, which I think a lot of people from the outside, they look at this like, oh, these guys must be, you know, getting fucked up all the time mm -hmm. because they're at these hardcore shows doing flips off stage, kicking each other, doing yeah. all like pitting and stuff. But oh, I have a funny. Yeah. I mean, to build off of that, I started doing drugs at nine years old. Um, I had an older sister, so I had a, a way of hanging out with the older kids. And up until 15 years old, I, uh, I went really hard with that and, um, to a place, you know, that could have been, uh, taken me down different paths for sure. And then I, I find, I found straight edge myself through the hardcore community. Cause I met a group of people that kind of all had, um, this sense of brotherhood and like camaraderie, but none of them did drugs or drink and we kind of found other miscellaneous activities to keep us in trouble but I think the fact that I got started with a lot of that stuff at such a young age um, just for personal like um, you know inter-family situations made me realize I didn't want to go down the paths that some of my uh, close family members have so I definitely, yeah, found myself with a bunch of angry straight edge guys. And it's kind of funny. The first time I ever got high was in this building at nine years old at the Puff Daddy World Tour, 1997. The TD Garden? At the TD Garden. It was the Fleet Center back then. So that's kind of funny. That's some Boston knowledge for you. That's <laughs> a full circle story. Um, so you, had, you have a passion for music and you found a community of people that care about each other, which, you know, it, it comes back to what we always are reference like, Oh, it's all like fitness, but really fitness is, I mean, if I had to do fitness alone, I don't know how fit I would be. I would try to find a bunch of other people that were doing similar things, but it seems that you like found a community in that. And so you, you know, for what was your first band all time low? Um, no. the first band I went on tour with the carrier. No, what were you? Oh, which one? You were just our, oh, our, our last, last night. night. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, band I love. So, mm -hmm. so pick up from there. So we had kind of that journey to get you there. What, what did that look like for you? Um, my best friend Tim plays drums for the uh, for our last night, and he and I, funny enough, met through the shows, uh, like the local music scene. And we met on MySpace, which is hilarious. Um, Shout but, out MySpace. <laughs> Shout out Tom. Um. And yeah, he, because he joined up with the band, um, they were just simply looking for somebody to come on tour and help them sell t-shirts, help them drive the van, help them load the gear in and out. And um, there was definitely something very attractive of uh, attractive to me about like moving city to city over the course of a long period of time, getting to see, you know, at the time was just domestic US, but like not even thinking that it would take me around the world. Um, yeah. And he just asked me one day, 
hey, you know, you want to come do this with us? And I, you know, just said yes. And um, later on, I was balancing college and, you know, going out on spring breaks and winter breaks and summer breaks, just trying to tour just because I had so much fun in the, um, you know, with my first couple of times that I, like, they got offered a tour with Finch, Scary Kids, Scaring Kids, um, from first to last, Our Last Night, and I forget the one other band, but Finch was my favorite band growing up. So I was like, if I now I have a chance to go like see them every single night for six weeks straight, like, yeah, I'm gonna not go to school for this, you know? So I had to have that hard conversation with my dad about just saying, you know, acknowledging that college wasn't for me. Um, academics were never my strong suit. I was always more of a, um, like street knowledge type education versus book knowledge. Um, and yeah, then I, I made the, uh, the switch to online school. Um, so remember those old Verizon, like, uh, wireless things you would the usb wireless things did you ever see those no dad didn't go to school no i mean it's like the <laughs> internet cards <laughs> um yeah. i used one of those for like a semester and then eventually the inevitable happened but yeah um so that's kind of like really what started to kick it off and and more of like i i say professional but like it was still very early now, have you always been, because I've worked with you before, and our relationship is very different than I feel a lot of the relationships of people that are on tour mm. with you. I know you've been in it for a long time, and you've dealt with a lot of bullshit. Have you always been this, like, I guess part of it would be good at your job, but two, being, like, direct, you know, like, anyone that I've, that I, that knew that we knew each other was, like, oh, like, Mike knows his shit. Mike is squared away. He's going to have everything set. No one is like, oh, we're not sure what time someone's going to get here. Like, it's always been, like, strict in that. Have you always been that way? Has that been from, from the start, or is that something that was, like, learned from failures or different issues? Yeah, I mean, like, I think the best lessons have always been my failures, or, you know, failures is, to me, like, a very strong word. Just, like, um, situations that have gone wrong, I would say, are the best life lessons and the best professional lessons for me. Um, early on, I just looked at, I looked at, you know, being the opening, being with the opening band, you're kind of the lowest on the totem pole. So you start to, for me, I was looking at the people headlining the show or the, you know, the tour manager of the band whose name was on the ticket, um, and see what they did and how they acted and almost copycatted a lot of their things and or saw like, nah, that's not really for me, but yeah. how can I build off of that? Or what aspects of, um, what aspects of what they're doing, whether it's, um, templates for documents and or, um, how they carry themselves when they walk through the venue. Um, it's all based off of kind of what I saw, what I learned and then what worked and what didn't work for me. You know, like there was the years of me being, you know, just the nicest kid, goofy kid, just let's have fun and party. And then there's the years of me being some like hardline asshole who like, if you looked at me, I would scream at you. Um, and then realizing like what my kind of professional identity like fell into. And, um, I just always, I think it just comes down to work ethic will drive, you know, um, how like 
I mean, now I call it neurotic, but like I just did always wanted to be seen as a professional. Yeah. And so I just wouldn't accept, I, I don't know. I think you, I, I admire you for this. And I think we both struggle with this is our personal bar or the, the bar that we set for ourselves is so much higher than anybody can realize. And we can't communicate that to them because that's just internal. But thus, that carries us to the places that we've been able to go. Yeah. So for people that don't know, if people are just involved in fitness here, elevator pitch, you get on and someone goes, Mike, what is a tour manager? Mm -hmm. What does a tour manager do? Uh, Tour manager uh, oversees the touring business for an artist and the the logistics and um, execution of contracted shows um, that the booking agent has set up with the band. Um, And this person is also the representative for the artist. Um, So they're able to organize and um, create a comfortable environment for the artist to do their job, which is perform every night to the best of their ability. And, I mean, you're talking about, like, routing between cities, what time you arrive, what time loadout is, Mm -hmm. managing production, managing... Yeah, that that involves, you know, top to bottom, it would involve, um, you know, receiving a routing and then essentially, I guess the easy way to say it is the booking agent would go ahead and lock in all the shows and then give me a packet and then say that now it's your time to work. So you know where you're going to go, so you have to work on the logistics to to get to and from. you know what the money's coming in, so you're going to have to budget accordingly. And then you got to start thinking about all types of expenses and everything that goes into a band showing up and playing. Okay. And I want to track back now because I talk about you being a hardo. One of my favorite <laughs> stories um, on tour, maybe not one of my favorite stories, but one that just pops to mind is we were in Dallas, Texas, I believe. And someone, because the music industry is, and this is also what I want to relate to, like when you talk about community in the hardcore world, it's like, I feel like a lot of people that you meet, like we're traveling in airports and there's people that are working for other bands or other people and they always come up to you and it's like, oh, I knew him for like, he was a hardcore kid. He was a hardcore (laughs) kid. So there's like this community of people where everyone in the touring world, it's almost like, hey, artists know each other. Then like tour managers all have this group as well. But someone had sent you a screenshot of one of the lighting guys um, he had like uh, up on his like Tinder page that he was uh, oh, yeah. that he worked for Dylan Francis and that he was only in your city for one night, and you called him into the office in front of all of us. I don't even remember this, but I, and I, oh, yeah. if you don't remember, I'll tell you exactly how it went down. <laughs> We're sitting in the office. You know, I have a relationship with Mike. We train. We we do diet nutrition. We hang out. We have fun. And this kid comes into the office and he's like, like they said you wanted to see me, and you said you showed him the Tinder profile and he said, you do not work for Dylan Francis. You work for this lighting group. You are lucky to be on this tour. Take this off your profile right now. If you want to keep working here. And I've never seen someone, this kid was standing in front, you know, just, just trying he's like a young kid. He's on tour for probably like the first time with a big artist. And he is just like, he saw a ghost and he was sitting there and I'm like, I didn't know this was going to happen. So I'm kind of in the room. Like, he's like, yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. He's like, if I ever see you like anything like this again, I'm going to call your company. We're going to send out another lighting guy. And he's like, yes, sir. And then left the office. And like everything was quiet for a little bit. And then it was just like laughs and jokes after that. But 
I was not ready for that. And I realized <laughs> that like people very quickly after that were like, okay, Mike is no BS. I'm not, I can't like put stuff out there because people will see you're so well connected. Anyone in the music industry about venues. There's times I reach out to you. I'm like, Hey, I'm in this city. Do you know this artist for this? And you're like, no, but I know the head of security there. Your tickets will be in will call. It's like, you, you know, everyone in that, but that's what I reference in like the, like the serious <laughs> kind of like, no, yeah. I don't know. You know, listen, I think there's, um, you know, years later reading like extreme ownership and stuff like that. I think early on it was just pride. It was being proud of what I did. It was being proud of the artists I, I represented. I care like, you know, um, Anthony actually, when one asked prior to getting hired to Travis, um, you know, what's, what's this guy's deal? Like, what's like, what are some of his issues? And Anthony said, you know, one of his biggest issues is he cares too much sometimes. And I think that like, I didn't take offense to that because that's not something I'm like upset about. Like I put my all into my work and, you know, I like to say that you're only as big as the artist you're working for, um, in a sense of, you know, to kind of stay humble with where you're at in general, but because I care about my artists, because I care about, you know, the, their brand, um, you have to, you know, put on a little like protective big brother like hat sometimes. And, you know, the day we're in the digital age. So if I got a screenshot about Dylan Francis's, you know, lighting tech, you know, using Tinder to like, you know, I don't know, using his name for Tinder, how many other people saw that, you know? And I would prefer to take on that stress and the responsibility of getting ahead of it versus having an artist, having Dylan come to me and being like, yo, what the fuck's going on? Like, I just had a fan DM me this, you know? Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I think it's like a, not a pride, like, you know what I mean though? Mm -hmm. Like, um, I want to, if I'm going to sign on to an act, like I'm going to give them my all. So like, I'm going to look out for all aspects of them until I'm told not to, you know? And I think so too, in the touring world, like some people may be like, well, what's the issue in that? And it's like, there's so much, you know, something what I've tried to change with artists is, is far, as well as like bringing like health and wellness on the road, but there's, a, it's a party atmosphere. Mm -hmm. and there's been a lot of artists that have been canceled from doing shady shit, from being like the people who are like, oh, we're just trying to get laid in every single city we yep. go to. And because Dylan wasn't like that and someone's using his name for it to be like, oh, like you yeah. can come like hang out with us. And it's like, kid wasn't with Dylan. He didn't have mm -hmm. like, he didn't have the ability to give all access, all area passes to people. <laughs> he just, so it kind of seems like hard at the time. And for me, I was just like, it's just hilarious. But then when you put it that way, I'm like, yeah, you can, you know, everyone that's on the tour is, you can be as good as you are at your job, but your job doesn't exist unless the artist is there. Correct. Which is, uh, which is cool. And I can, you can see like the, the pride in that. And I also think when you're talking about you know, the bar that we set for ourselves, and I'll just kind of bring you into it because it's specific. What I think has been really cool is that since we've known each other, you've had these bars about like, well, what I really want to do is X. What I really want to do is X. What I really want to do. And I've seen you accomplish those things. And then it's not, all right, we're good. It's all right. What's, what's the next thing to do? Because mm. I remember for a time you were like my goal from starting off with like hardcore bands to bigger bands to DJs to country artists to everyone it was like, I want to have a show. I want to you know, sell out the TD garden. Mm -hmm. 
And then, you know, instead of just selling out the TD Garden, you are on a tour that, you know, running it from the top to bottom that sells out Fenway three nights in a row. Yeah. I still have never done a show in this building. And I think that's like the universe's way of like, you're not done yet. Yeah. Because I always said since I was a kid, like I or since I started this, I will retire when I do a headline show at the Garden. And so thus, I've never played the Garden. <laughs> I've played every other venue in this town. Yeah, just know? gotten even bigger <laughs> venues and, and broke every record in country music. Yeah. At, um, another thing I'm curious about is you talked about merch. Mm. And I never got it. I always, you know, I go to a show and there's like the merch walls and people are always in line to get shirts. What's the money look like in merch? Um. I mean, that's a massive income stream for artists these days. And um, not these days, always. It's like, because, um, you know, the a deal structure for a normal show contract is the artist gets paid to perform. And then there's usually a percentage split on the merchandise, um, which, you know, Live Nation, for example, is now shifting uh, some of their policies, which I admire. But essentially, you're getting charged a rental fee for that to sell it like essentially a day of retail space. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, in the merch world, we call it a per head. Like you, you justify your merch revenue by how much per head are you receiving? So if an artist is receiving a dollar per head at the house of blues, they're making 2,600 bucks that night, you know, um, artists that I've been a part of even at the house of blues or even paradise are making $40 per head, you know, it's, it starts to become real revenue because you obviously have the cost of goods plus, and then the retail price, you know? Um, but I mean, it's really interesting, um, to see at the higher level, the amount of money it costs to go to the show alone. And then these people are still spending 150 bucks on t-shirts and hoodies and posters. It's like, you start to really question when you're hearing that there's recessions and, you know, the economy's not doing well because on our end, um, I always like to bring up, I I used to be the merch manager for, um, Owl City. Remember? Oh yeah. Fireflies. Uh, Diablo. Diablo. Shout out. (laughs) Um, and you know, that was in 2010 at the tail end of the 2008 recession And I remember coming home from that tour because I didn't have an apartment at the time. So my dad picked me up in like Providence or something and was like, yeah, the construction sites are pretty ugly these days. And I'm like, why? And he's like, he's like, we're in the midst of like the largest recession in history. And I'm like, nah, like we just sold X amount of hundreds of thousands of dollars at this venue and just in T-shirts don't sit here and tell me that the economy is doing bad. So it's funny, like, uh, I, I don't know, It's uh, merchandise is a massive income stream for artists, and, and it's cool to see the artists that put the effort into the branding of it, too. And Andrew, my old roommate, you know, he's a creative designer for more bands than you can imagine. And to see, like, his rel- like his designs that are relative and that are hip and that are cool it it can change a band's career, like life just from the additional revenue brought in, you know? That's cool. And you're talking Andrew, the... Danish A. Andrew. Okay. Cook. Yeah. You met him, right? Yeah. My old roommate. A few times, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we're talking about an artist that actually plays for the band, Dan and yeah, Shay. He's a drummer. He's also yeah. 
a graphic designer. And a coffee shop owner and a bar owner and speaks like multiple languages. I don't know. He makes me feel like a weak human. Hustle never ends. No. Shout out Andrew Cook. I, you're my hero. <laughs> <laughs> so then kind of transitioning through, um, how long were you with Dylan? Uh, just under six years. Um, like September of 2014 to essentially May of 2019. So just, yeah. And Uh, yeah, five years, over five years. I don't know. And with that, any side stories that stand out to you that are just either fun or funny or wild stories or anything? I mean, I'll forget. I'll always remember my first show with him because a, I had no idea what he looked like. I had no idea like what he, who he was. Like I was not a guy from the EDM world. I was always in pop punk and rock and pop. So I, you know, Anthony Amora again is the one who put my name forward for that. And, you know, I had to Google pictures of what this guy looked like, but he changed his hair color so many times that I had no idea who I was meeting at the airport. And we did a show at, um, UC Sacramento, I think. And like Moby was headlining. So I was like fanboying because I was like, holy shit, like Moby's just sitting in our dressing room right now talking to Dylan. Also, you know, Serato boxes for CDJs. I had never set up CDJs in my life. And I'm in front of like 50,000 students trying to set this up, watching YouTube videos during a changeover. And like Dylan's like, yeah, we good. I'm like, totally good. You know, great. I had no idea what I was doing, but you know, little did I know, um, that was the start of, you know, not just a very long time with an artist, but you know, who would eventually become one of my best friends. Um, and we clicked on a lot of like non work things, music choices, him going to like old punk shows in LA and, uh, us liking a lot of the same bands, um, so yeah, um, I mean, there's a lot of good stories. I don't know, but the one's appropriate to share. Um, we went to Myanmar, which used to be Burma and like we landed and it's, I didn't understand like what a fifth world country looks like. And this country just received internet five years prior to us going. And this was like 2017 or 18. Um, and we went to this Buddhist temple and it was in Yangon. And, you know, we took our shoes off, which I always, I was already kind of sketched out about, but spent like a half a day in this Buddhist temple, just walking around. And we just were like having fun, like young, like, monks would come up to him and like be like yo we're big fans and i'm like how do you know they're like can we take pictures and i was like you have cell phones i'm so confused you know um but like you know thanks to dylan um i had already gone you know to australia to asia to southeast asia to europe uk um south america U.S., like all over the U.S. I had already been to those places, but with Dylan, we were able to travel like even beyond. And um, 
it was really special in that sense. Like, you know, just one year alone, we made it around the world probably two or three times. And we did that for, you know, five plus almost six years straight. So, you know, I don't know. Shout out Dylan. He's just the best. But, um, yeah, I don't know. We've, we've, I wish I did a better job of writing down some of these stories. (laughs) Maybe it's a good thing I didn't, I don't, but. There was definitely some like '80s hair metal, like Motley Crue nights for sure, and that was fun. But you know, we're we're both in great relationships now, and we'll never speak of those times. <laughs> um, I think one of the things I like most about Dylan is that he never took himself so seriously. Mm. Like I've worked with some artists that, you know, that they, they they talk about all the stuff that they do on stage and their work and everything. And, and I get that it's a serious thing and people put their passion into their music, but I felt like Dylan was just like, Hey, I'm, I'm fortunate that people want to hear the stuff that I make and that people are buying tickets to shows. And he always like seemed grateful for the fans, but never like so much like, Oh, I'm not going to talk to this person. Like he always hung out with the whole crew. He always like has communication with the crew. He has people that have been with him forever. And he was always just like so down to earth, which made it like relatable. Probably the reason why that you were able to kind of like pitch me on there and like, mm-hmm. like start getting some training in is because it wasn't like he didn't need to always just hang out with the celebrities. Mm-mm. If it was up to him, he'd just hang out with his friends, the people that are working production, visuals, video, audio, all that stuff from his crew because it's the people that he trusts. And it's like he kind of like, you know, knew who he was mm-hmm. in that area as opposed to trying to find it through like every other celebrity. Yeah, I mean, like, listen, shout out Katisa and Drew Francis. Like, talk about parents that, like, kept him humble. And, I mean, taking, you know, if I ever have kids, I will take notes, you know. But um, he comes from a great home, like, great set of parents. And, you know, he was always, you know, uh, how many Christmases did I spend in L.A. at his house? Because, like, that was the one thing we couldn't miss is Christmas Eve dinner. And you can just tell that, you know, it, it kind of, he was always, uh, he always stayed true to himself. And although like, you know, I consider him a very professional and serious, you know, artist, um, he always knew how to just be, you know, a more civilian human, you know? And, um, I think I like that you brought up the fact that people have worked with him forever because his entire crew, uh, plus or minus, you know, some video guys or, you know, some swap outs for lighting guys, like that's the crew that we built together. And it's so awesome to see pieces of puzzles fit and people can create an entire career off of that. You know, that's rewarding to me, even if I'm not on the road with him still, you know, um, all those, all the crew guys are, you know, still, I would keep in my MySpace top 18, you know? So we talk about Dylan as kind of like, you know, almost the idol or the pinnacle of what, of, of type of person you'd want to work for. And he talked to a lot of celebrities and they're like, I wouldn't wish fame on anyone because it can be very, very difficult. Mm. What are some of the struggles that you've seen from other artists that you work for that not necessarily that you have to like empathize with, but some of these people who have blown up and they became, they become major, major artists and you know, do people have trust issues? Do they not know who their friends are? Are they just seeking other celebrities? Like, what are some of the issues and stuff that you've seen that you've had to deal with um, just in that celebrity uh, category? I think fame 
is incredibly isolating. Um, whether it's from a security standpoint or just, you know, like you said, like, um, like, um, authenticity standpoint too. Um, you don't know to me, you'd never really know who's being real with you, especially if you have a team that is full of, you know, people always saying yes to you and never challenging you to, um, you know, look at things with different lenses because you're the one essentially funding all these people's lifestyles, you know? Um, so I think the saddest part of fame is isolation and like the fact you can't go out in public sometimes. And if you do, it's a thing. And, you know, not that fans shouldn't come up and say hello, but like, if you are just trying to eat a cheeseburger, like, let's wait till you're walking out of the restaurant, you know, um, or walking into the restaurant or, you know, not be as person, like not take it as personal that like, they're just saying, Hey, I'm not doing photos right now. Cause if you think like, I mean, I can't even imagine what it's like, like for them nowadays, like everything is accessible by our phones. Like we know where people are hanging out. We know where they're eating dinner. We know where they get coffee. Like, um, how do you find a sense of normalcy through that all, you know? Um, and I also think that after being told yes for so long, you start to not understand that there is no, um, that there's, uh, you know, you, people will say no sometimes and, uh, definitely have dealt with my fair share of artists that, you know, don't accept that word very well, even though sometimes that's all that you have to offer, you know? Um, so there's definitely unique ways to tell an artist no or something without <laughs> telling them no. But yeah, I would say like the isolation part is the, probably like the saddest part of fame it, when you put it that way i think like i can go to any restaurant i can go to any gym i can go to anything someone comes up and talks to me you meet someone you're like what a cool person but in a celebrity side of it or someone who has fame it probably starts to get to the point where it's like what does this person want from me mm -hmm. like does this person want me to post on their instagram do they want me to do something for them do they want me to do that and it's uh, when you put it that way, it's like, there's, how do you know, how do you meet a new friend? Mm -hmm. And if you didn't ha already have a, a good set of people, how do you know who's real? Because the people who aren't real are going to do everything they can to convince you that they don't want anything from you until they want something want from something. you or take it from you. Yeah. And I mean, like, even on my end, working closely with them, you know, I try to be very transparent about that, you know? Um, you know, for a long time, I never posted on artists I worked with because, like, I didn't want to take pictures of us and post it because, like, that's the time we can just be normal and be off camera, you know? Mm -hmm. But um, it's, man, I feel like it could be, like, a doctorate program on sociology and psychology is just fame, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think Kevin Hart had, like, an interview where he said it, and he's like, it's the most addicting drug. And especially if you don't know who you are, you don't know your values, and you don't know what you stand for to then get fame and then try to figure it out from there. Like, I just, I can't imagine. And everyone always looks at it from a lens of like, oh, it's like the glamorous lifestyle. Everything's fantastic. But I never thought of it in a sense of like, the more famous you are, the more isolated you're going to be. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, on my end, on the, like, the tra 
you take that and then have to move these people all around the world, you know, I'm, I would, I'm biasly going to say, like, I have a firsthand account on what that isolation looks like and how kind of like dark it can be. Um, but then you try, the only way to make it more comfortable is to tell an artist they need to spend more money to get it to that level, whether it's flying private or staying at nicer hotels that have bigger rooms. So you have places to go where, you know, I've worked with, you know, specific artists that like, if he was just traveling alone, he would just stay in a King room, even though, you know, he's selling out multiple nights at, at, um, at arenas locally, you know? but he doesn't really need the big rooms or anything like that. That's his thing. But if there's nowhere to go, like you kind of want that extra room in a hotel to go eat dinner with and, or invite your friends on tour. So you have some people to hang out with and bring the Xbox to the room and play video games, you know? Um, so you, you know, it's trying to find that medium, but how do you convince someone to spend their own money on those luxuries if they're just, don't understand the purpose you know yeah i I mean when you said from like a a standpoint of you know again of it being hard or it being you're being isolated the more famous you are it's like that isolation piece i think about someone who could be potentially depressed right someone whose things aren't going well for them in, in their life it's easy from an outside perspective to be like maybe i should reach out to this person or i empathize with this person but how do you do that when, from the outside looking in, your life is more incredible than anyone else can imagine? How do you how do you seek help, and mm. in, in a way where it's like, like I'm struggling right now. As you're performing, happy people are are cheering your name, are singing the lyrics to your songs, you know, are sending you all these messages like, oh, your lyrics changed my life and all this stuff. Yet you're lonely. It's like how how does that not look like a selfish act? Which I think comes down to two things. One, when we talk about the state of mental health and how do you come out of that if people won't recognize that that's what's going on. And two, how easy that turn to drugs and alcohol is. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm a big firm believer on like work, like the team you surround yourself with. And um, you can't force people to trust you, nor can you force like yourself to trust them. So how, you know, how can you learn to trust certain people, especially if you've been burned so many times Mm -hmm. because you think of artists or celebrities career and how many people have come and gone, come and gone, you know? Um, But I, you know, I think it's, I, I guess I can only speak really from my experience where you recognize the energy that it takes to go and turn on and switch on to go on stage for two hours. And then you realize that that doesn't just stop when they walk off stage. That sometimes takes three or four hours for that adrenaline to come down. So what can you do to make those three or four hours comfortable? Um, I've seen artists want to go and work out after the show. You've seen that. Um, I've seen artists want to get the fuck off the venue's property and just go away and go to the, you know, the, the hotel or go straight to the plane. Um, like you kind of have to like learn what will help them almost come down from the high because, um, I can't, I I've never performed on stage, so I don't know the true adrenaline rush. I get my own adrenaline rushes like in my own ways, but, um, 
yeah, like how do you, um, how do you communicate that? And I think, um, there's a lot of discussions on mental health, especially in the touring space. And there's a lot of people that want to talk about their mental health, but what are our actual actions being taken to understand what that means in that space? Um, and I went, you know, I had a, that call with a certain, um, health tracker company that we both wear. Um, like, and I wanted to look at it from a scientific place of, well, from the cruise side, if we partner with you and we tell everybody, hey, we're going to wear all these bands and we're going to get metrics on these different departments and we're going to start noticing, you know, the, how, ma- how many people are spending multiple hours in the high stress zone every day. Maybe that's something that the touring management or people from my end can put some extra effort or we can get with the artist and the accounting team to say, hey, um, we need to set aside some additional money to go and give each of these crew guys uh, or crew people um, a gift card for a massage and start acknowledging, you know, the resting heart rates of some truck drivers are at 115. That's a whole whole nother category. Like what, like how can we help that from like more of a data standpoint versus just sit here and talk about how can we make people not depressed, you know? And I think, you know, I was, unfortunately that company kind of just brushed me off. They were like, we'll give you a 10% discount. And I'm like, okay, well, when we're across the street for an entire week, you're not welcomed. So, (laughs) um, but you know, like I think there needs to be some more initiatives in that sense to, so, so there's just some more data, to back up, like who is experiencing this mental health dips? Why is it workplace? Is it stress? Is it workload? Is it, um, or, you know, from an artist standpoint to get the data of what their actual body is doing on stage. It's Mm. fascinating. And then, um, I worked for Thomas Rhett and he wore a Garmin and, um, you know, he was burning 1100 calories a night on stage (sighs) You know, and that's, it's actually insane to think about, you know? And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like someone, you know, when I, from the outside perspective, looking at someone like Thomas Rhett, it's like, that's someone who, you know, obviously incredibly famous, but someone super family oriented. And it doesn't have to be family. It can be friends. It can Mm -hmm. be your work. It can be anything that keeps you grounded. But it seems like that's the kind of guy who's like, He's got his priorities, and no matter how big everything else gets, he has that place to come back to to where, like, this is home Mm. wherever he goes. Yeah, I mean, and I think it it goes back to his his support group backstage, or not, or I would say offstage. You know, his family, I've never met a family that is so tight, close, tight-knit and and close with each other. And, you know, they, they always continue to keep each other accountable for things, and his wife, Lauren, is literally an angel to this earth. Like, and she would remind him that he's, you know, cool. Congrats on selling out Madison square garden. You have diapers to change on Monday, you know, like, and I think it comes back to the support group, you know, off stage on and off stage, but off stage to kind of keep that, um, kind of keep focuses aligned or priorities straight or however you want to phrase it, you know? 
I was on here um, the other day with a guy, Darren Batista. He's a trainer. And I asked him a question that I haven't asked anyone, but I want to ask you the same thing. What I asked him, because as a, as a personal trainer and, you know, training more higher profile people in Boston, he's starting to grow his brand. He's super level-headed. But I asked him, if you, what would be your dream as far as like what you did for work and how, like, like as unrealistic as it could be, like if you were like, this is what I wish I did and this is what like came along with it, what would that be in your industry? What would that look like? Like what my dream situation would be? Yeah, and it can be unrealistic. Yeah. Um, hmm. I'll, I'll share with you just yeah. because, it, just to probably give it a little bit of context. I asked him that question and later the night, I thought about it myself and I was like, as a trainer, what could I do? And I was like, you know what I would do if it was a dream scenario, I would post a, either a live or a pre-recorded video every night that went out on YouTube and every person in the world did the workout and they talked to each other about the workout. It doesn't need to be the most high skill workout. It doesn't even need to be something that like dramatically moves the needle from like sickness to wellness or wellness to fitness but I would want to be in charge of a workout where everyone did it. And then from there, they all talk to their friends about it. And they'd be like, Oh, what was your score on this one? Oh, this was the greatest part of it and create those communities. But every single person in the world would do it. And then I thought, well, what I want responsibility or credit for that. I'm like, I wouldn't want to walk out and everyone be like, Oh, that's the guy who does the workout. But what I would want is for people to be like, Hey, this was, this was changing for me. My wife and I now do this together and it's really brought us closer together. My daughter and I, we never got along on a lot, but now we can do these like little quick workouts. So you're like, that would be an unrealistic. I can't get, you know, 8 billion people to do a workout, maybe. But that's what I would want in my, my very, very dream scenario. And then outside of that, I still want to do my one-on-one training. Yeah. I want to train my high school wrestlers that, uh, that are getting calls from every college in the nation. Like that's, that's their work, but that's something that I take pride in. And I want to do the small stuff. But like that's what it would be like. That would be the coolest thing that I could possibly do. Uh, I mean, like, I'm struggling to find an answer because, like, um, I I fear that if it could come across egotistical, but... Well, I think think mine comes across pretty egotistical. Like, I want everyone in the world to do what I tell them to do. (laughs) I want to be the dictator (laughs) Um, of fitness. I think it would be um, creating an infrastructure that so many people used on and off tour to understand the bigger like reasoning we all do it and that's to take care of each other and so i you know i yeah i don't know that's a that's a tough ass question jesus um yeah i i like because from my end and i've said this in the couple podcasts that i've been a part of is like the quote that i live by and I have to sometimes circle back to is work so hard that you never have to introduce yourself when you walk into a room. And that was said by a gentleman named Jake Barry, who's, you know, um, essentially one of the innovative dudes who created modern day touring and he's still touring now and in his older age. But, you know, that stuck with me because I don't want to necessarily 
I don't want to be famous. I don't want to, I don't want to, um, I don't want to, like, like you said, walk into the street and everybody point at me, you know? But the idea of I achieved through hard work, just the fact that I'm known for my hard work, that's to me like the best feeling. So how can I, what could I do to get that so everybody can try to feel that? Um, and some of the people that, some of the younger tour managers and, and crew people that I've had the, you know, I'm very thankful to be a part of their journey. That's what I challenged them with. And like, that's where maybe the tough love comes apart. Cause I, you know, generational, generationally we're different, you know, and I don't want to say we're softer or we're more aggressive, but I think we have a unique balance of both where we can recognize some of the sense the hypersensitivities of the modern day gen- generation, but we also dealt with our parents who are more of the tougher love, you know, in my case, put on a hard hat and go work in construction. So it's like, <clears throat> I don't know. I think trying to continue to spread that because it only benefits them. And so saying it out loud is, you know, I, I, I don't know, like promote selflessness maybe. I don't know, you know, but like, um, I don't know. I got to think about that. That's good. That's it. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think something that's cool and, and directly related to what you're talking about and what you're doing is, I mean, essentially at one point in time you were told that, touring and being a tour manager isn't like a career and not something that you can necessarily do because you wanted to do that instead of school. And now because of your success, because of how well you've done. And that's not just, I mean, like I see it and it's funny to me because I still have like calendars of artists that we've both worked for. And I like show you the calendar and they're like, Oh, they still use my same template for this (laughs) or they still use this or that. But now actually full circle doing your job so well that now you are a college professor teaching it to other people. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. I, um, my, my very dear friend, Morgan Malardo, um, we met at UMass Lowell. She was studying music business. I couldn't study music business cause I didn't play an instrument. So I just took every class as an elective and I just kind of said, fuck you. But, um, we met then and we just always stayed in touch and I've always admired. She's found her own path through it all. She went out to LA for a bit. She's worked for some local companies like harmonics and, and other industry, very like industry heavy companies and then found her way into the education side. Um, she had me come speak at UMass Lowell, which is, was a very full circle, the first full circle moment for me. And, you know, she was the one that was like, you would be an amazing professor. And I'm like, huh, you know, like, where do you buy drugs, kids? Lesson, today's lesson plan, you know? Um, but like, she was kind of the one that kind of pushed me to start thinking about that. And during COVID times, when I was sitting at home, I just thought of like, maybe I just write a curriculum just to have it. And she actually invited me to speak at Berkeley a couple of times with the professor that was teaching the class that I'm teaching now, um, just as a guest speaker. And then it came to light that he was going to be retiring. So a position was going to be opening. And she asked if I'd be interested. And I'm like, for sure. Like, that sounds awesome. I still have a few years of touring left that I can foresee, but like in the right time. 
fast forward, you know, six months later, she's like, okay, they can't find anybody. Would you be interested? And I'm like, when? They're like, it, the semester starts in three weeks. And I'm like, okay, like, can I even do that? You know? Um, and then come to find out, you know, they, uh, were very interested in, I think the relevance of where I'm at in my career, it's with a lot of artists that these students listen to, or they're aware of. And, um, it, it's a different, it's an updated version of what the class was built off of, you know? Um, so yeah, I started teaching in 20, the fall of 23, no, two, fall of 22. Yeah. Um, and built a syllabus cause I guess that's, you got to do that stuff. I remember um, people saying that word when I was in school. Yep. Um, it's still a thing. Okay, um, they're still doing those. Still still doing doing those. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, built a syllabus and I essentially just like, I have been in relatively the same pathway in, in the touring world for most of my career now. So like, I just thought, well, like my role kind of knows everything, every little position has to understand every little position that's out on the road. I'm, I'm not an expertise at lighting, but I understand lighting and or contracts. I understand them. I can't write them. I'm not a lawyer, but I essentially looked at it as like, well, if I teach essentially how to do my job and be a tour manager and everything that it takes start to finish to essentially get to a show, perform the show, uh, do the accounting affiliated with the show, um, and then move on to the next city, that kind of covers most of concerts and touring. So I've built a, like essentially a study guide version of that. And um, yeah, I've been able to maintain it while touring, which is not the most... Um, doesn't allow for any extra sleep, but like it's been rewarding, um, where the career side is kind of like the consistent part. The work side has been consistent. Now it's like almost a way to give back. And that's why I essentially took the job. Not only like, you know, I tell the students the first day of class is like, you know, I used to work at the coffee shop that you guys get your coffee shop or you get your coffee at. I was a bike messenger in the streets of Boston. I was working at Newberry Comics, putting stickers on CDs, tagging them. Like, I walked by this building my entire life and hoped one day I could get there. Again, didn't play an instrument, so I definitely wasn't getting there. But now it's a way to, like, be a part of it. And the irony, the full circle, the nostalgia all plays a part. But the biggest reward so far... Um, has been having, let's say, out of my each semester, I have about 40 to 45 students. If I have four or five of those students reach out and saying, hey, I'm graduating next semester, um, you have now made me want to look into touring as a career. Like, that's, to me, the biggest reward because I I love this weird job. And now they saw, hopefully through either the lesson plans or just me talking about it, that I'm still very passionate about it. So they, they too can go and try to achieve it. And to see uh, one student specifically, she now works for Live Nation out in L.A. She's with the Latin buying uh, promoting team. 
she reminds me almost every six months. She's like, you know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. Like, thank you. And like that to me, like that's enough to, for me to move on to like go and work construction or something like at least I gave it back, you know? Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been a cool journey in that sense. And I hope to kind of continue that and keeping it relevant. And I was an awful student. Like I was an awful college student. So to me, I tell them, I'm like, I, I ask them and I kind of test them to see who's going to be honest when I'm like, Hey, who's here to learn about touring? Everybody raises their hand. Who doesn't give a fuck? And nobody, I said, there's at least two of you that don't care <laughs> and you will get two easy credits. Trust me. It's very hard to fail my class, but just be honest, you know? Um, and then eventually you'll be like, you see a couple of people like shrug, you know? And, uh, I have everybody fill out a note card the first day. It's like name, what semester you are, what year you are, what instrument you play and what do you want to get out of this class? And this year specifically, um, a few days ago, I had like four people just write, I have no idea. And I was so fired up by that. And like one student was like, not sure, had to fill in my last like two credits for the semester. And I was like, this person's going to get an A, like just for being honest, you know? But yeah. I feel like when you open it up like that, it almost allows them to be like, hey, if the teacher knows I don't have expectations from this, then and they're okay with that, maybe I am, Maybe there is something I can pick yeah. up. Maybe there is something. Those might be the kids. I feel like I was kind of that kid. Mm-hmm. And it was always the teachers that were real with me. Mm-hmm. But I was like, you know what? They're invested in me. They're not just going to teach the same thing no matter what and not care. I feel like I'm going to get a little bit more invested in this. Yeah, and the amount of like students that have just said, like, hey, thank you for talking to us, not at us. And I think that's like so huge. Um, but I also say the first day, I'm like, I'm a tour manager. Like, I've made a career of just being in like running around wreaking havoc around this world now. And now somehow I'm allowed to teach you. So like I'm a tour manager first and now somehow I'm a professor. So just so you know, that's where I'm looking at this. Like, but I do respect you all in your collegiate careers that I hope you take something out of it, even if it's just a shitty Excel form that I give you. You know what I mean? But what are the best and worst parts of touring? Short answers. I mean, not um, one word, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, best parts is seeing the world, um, seeing different cultures, understanding how lucky we are uh, to wake up every day in, in, you know, whatever country you're living in. But for me, waking up here. In the United um, States of America. Amen. Um, seeing cultures, experiencing cultures, experiencing different types of, um, cultures too. Like, um, it, it takes this big, massive thing called the earth and makes it completely, it turns it into that actual globe on the bookshelf. You know, it's, it's, it makes the earth so small and it's really awesome. Um, that's one of the best things. I, I will never trade that part in. Um, and the bonds I've made with these people, living with them day in and day out, um, and the enemies. But I think the worst part is um, you, you miss all of the birthdays. 
You miss all of the weddings. You miss all, sometimes the funerals. You miss, um, you know, big parts of people's lives because this is what your job entails. And, um, you know, that is definitely one of the worst things. But thankfully now I'm going into year 16 of doing this or finishing year 16 of doing this. Um, they understand. And then I usually say, like, if I'm not going to be in the wedding, don't like just save the invite because that's the only way I can really get out of it is if I'm in the wedding, yeah. you know, but, um, that's definitely one of the worst things. And also lifestyle, like consistency and, um, uh, you know, you know, firsthand and not just to circle it up to like fitness, but you know, I don't have a consistent regimen when it comes to diet or fitness. Um, James Hobart used to say, you know, the Mike Finn program was, go and do max lifts one day and then take six weeks off and then come back and do more max lifts. And somehow they get bigger. Like, you know, like that's sometimes all it, all it allows, you know, cause the difference of my position than say an artist is, uh, you know, my job is to create that downtime for them and help them be more comfortable to have that downtime, but their downtime is still time I'm working. So you saw firsthand when we were like, um, yeah, like when we agreed before the tour, it's like you're going to actually bring me a plate of food so I have no choice of what I eat. I'm going to eat it and work because if I don't go to the, the catering room, that means I will probably gain about 35 minutes, 30 to 45 minutes of extra time that I would have been sitting there fucking around. We can now use that to work out. Like that's kind of goes back to like that's how my brain works, you know? So, um yeah, consistency is brutal. And that's, I mean, I guess if we want to circle back to fitness, I do suppose this is a Be Fit podcast. Um, <laughs> that's one of the best and most rewarding parts as a trainer. And I think that a lot of people don't see or understand that. You know, people will look at the role of a tour trainer or celebrity trainer or whatever that is and be like, oh, that's awesome. They get to like do and experience that. But the best parts of it for me were one being of use and that's like if if there was like a why are we alive and it's like to be of use for other people it's really what it comes down to and that's what i truly believe and it might be like this like alfred adler like this adlerian psychology type thing but like if you can find use for other people and especially someone in that stressful of an environment to be the person to without you asking me to like bring you the plate and you're like damn i wanted to take this break to go to cater <laughs> yeah. and do this stuff and to be able to do that where wake up in the morning, I'd be the first one up, I'd make everyone's coffees. What's in the coffees? Not anything bad that you're going to want. <laughs> Not the stuff you want, but the stuff you're going to get in there. Have coffees, and then you go out there, and instead of it being like, oh, when am I going to make time to train today? It's like, here's the workout, here's the timing on it, here's this stuff. And there'd be times where I know like you'd be busy, and it'd be like, oh, I've got to do this. And I was like, perfect, we're going to row for five minutes. Mm -hmm. And it was like, damn, I can't say I can't do something yeah, for five 100%. minutes in that. And then you do it and it's like, just at the end of a tour, when you have people being like, like you, losing 20 pounds on a tour from training every day, eating well, and just creating a less stressful environment to when everyone else thinks it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's like the celebrity style, like rainbows and everything like that. Like it's tough for, for everyone on the tour, but being able to support that is, is way cooler for me than it being like, you know, we're, we're celebrity training. Here's me. 
here's my, you know, you know what? VIP passes. You know what? Remember that day? Where were we flying? Were we flying to Canada? No. We were, fl- we were flying somewhere, and we flew across the... Maybe it was Vegas to somewhere. San Juan, and, Puerto Rico. Nope, not that one. Oh. It was still on that tour in 2019. We were flying... We flew off, did Vegas, and then we were flying back to the tour... And because we were doing like the intermittent fasting, none of us had eaten when we got to Atlanta. And you were like, you can eat this and this. And like, for some reason it like, they ran out of stuff. Or I just remember sitting at this like shitty bagel spot, eating like essentially lettuce, hating you (laughs) and being so fucking hungry. You're like, I mean, might as well just not eat because we'll just get there and have a good meal. And I'm like, I haven't eaten in like 18 hours. And you're like, yeah, whatever. Cause of time changes and whatever. Oh, that's right. And I was just, I was, I was so fucking angry, but I, I, for some reason I'll never forget that day because again, like we've, I don't know, we went to, uh, I don't know, Starbucks and we got a, like, we each got like six egg bites or something like that. And yeah. I was just like finally seeing straight, but yeah, but like, that's, I mean, I've always said that too. Like, it's the accountability too, right? Like, um, I am not on stage and, or in the photos or, you know, have to worry about the public image where I think that, that, that drive is super beneficial for artists and they can lean into that. It's a little easier to have some personal accountability where like you were essentially my only accountability because, or else I'd just be like, nah, fuck it. You know? Yeah. I mean, but, it's easy to in that environment, 100%. especially with that much stress. Mm-hmm. I remember a show one time. Um, I had to like pull off the tour. You know what? It was it was with Gravy. It wasn't with mm. Alice in Wonderland when I was with Dylan. But I remember I took a bus or a train to Philly, and I met the team in Philly. And I got there, and Dylan was like, "I'm not gonna have time for a workout." And I just went into the truck. I grabbed all of our stuff. I brought it out on the floor. I'm like, we're doing a workout. Because I was like, I remember being stressed about it. And I remember we did one where I'm like, you're going to do a round of this, and then I'm going to do a round of this. Because in the same sense, like, I needed it too. <laughs> and it was so funny because then, like, the after effect is, is, you know, Dylan being like, oh, that was awesome. But I remember that show specifically because Dylan didn't change afterwards. He was still <laughs> wearing his, like, trainers and shorts. And he, like, wore it up on stage. And then when, uh, like, him and Gravy would play their, like, set, because it would go Gravy and then Dylan, and then they would, like, play some of their songs together. He was, like, out in front of the stage, and he just didn't give a shit. He was, like, still sweating, (laughs) still wearing his shorts and whatever trainers that I was bringing him on the road. But it's, it's, like, funny stuff and stories like that where it's almost like there's, like, a little bit of misery, but because you had that accountability Mm -hmm. to do something, it was like, yeah. And, like, afterwards, it was like, yeah, I feel a lot better now. Yeah, and I think that's where we had a lot of luck together is because you weren't training me necessarily where you had to be a little more hands-on and attentive to Dylan, even though you could work out with him and stuff like that, where I felt like there was some fun workouts we did, like the one, um, what's his face made the video of, of in Philly. Oh um, yeah. Just like that imam or whatever we did. But like we were able to, we did that also in, I think Houston when we brought out the, the runner and we were just doing something with a runner in a row or something. Like, we were just, like, we could do the partner stuff. We could do, because you didn't really necessarily need to watch me, like, watch how I squatted. You yeah. knew I could squat. Mm. You know what I mean? So that was also, like, that element to it, too. But Having a live bill, buddy. That's it. <laughs> Holy shit. Shout out. Shout out the boys. <laughs> Talk about another community full of just degenerates. <laughs> so um, what are you looking forward to? 
Um, just the next chapter. I mean, like right now we've had a lot of deep dives on it. Like being <clears throat> between uh, between jobs, essentially, you kind of have a lot of time to sit and reflect on what I what I want and what I want out of something. Um, cause I'm, I'm not, I've never had that strength that some people have of just like getting a job and just being like, yeah, whatever. It's a paycheck. I've just never been able to do that. So I have to kind of care about what I'm doing just so I just want to do it, you know? Um, so I, I have truly enjoyed, um, the time on working on self-awareness and kind of my needs and knowing that it's, you know, the difference between an ego versus, you know, care, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, self-care. Um, but I'm looking forward to just kind of whatever the next chapter is going to be. Um, and you know, through the different support systems that I've, I have like you, you and a few others, my best friend, Britain as well. Like, you know, just the, uh, I truly do know that everything will work out. Um, but it's, there's so much other good happening in my life that isn't just based around my job. And that's probably the first time ever in my career. So reminding myself of that daily, um, having a a beautiful girlfriend that is just a, and, and, keeping me grounded on the daily and keeping me accountable in, in other aspects of life. Um, it's been like, that's been really enjoyable. Um, and I don't think you've ever known me to ever have a girlfriend, which is hilarious. And that's a funny piece too, because <laughs> yeah. you talk about like, I'm like, Hey, what are you looking forward to? And for most of us, that's usually been the priority our whole lives. It's mm-hmm. like, Oh, just being able to like, you know, being able to relax and find something grounded where, I found that you found overworking as your home, mm-hmm. overworking as being grounded, and all the other aspects of life have suffered. And any other, you know, people you've dated sucked. But <laughs> finding someone that I would say now, we'll, we'll drop names. No, you are. I, she, she definitely is not going to list, but we can tag her. I'm going to send it to her. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> go to uh, go to one hour seven minutes in. I got something for you. I have a message. Um. <laughs> Anyways, but to see that and to see you like happy and finding, you know, as much as I feel like it, at this point in time, you know, finishing off the last year with Travis Scott and then being like, I don't, you know, really know what's next. Mm-hmm. You've always like, kind of known what's next in that, but to see you prioritizing your own health and investing in, you know, being a boyfriend, mm-hmm. which I've always said, hey, man, I'm available well, if that's what you wanted to do. But I think we've been waiting for that true like benefits package. Yeah. Then we'll sign on. Yeah. Definitely. A hundred percent. I'm in. Um, but to see you invest that in someone else and being how good you can be to someone else and then getting in and having you receive that back and seeing that it's like, for most people, it seems like they're like, well, why wasn't that the first thing that's prioritized? But to see that be the thing that's grounding you and keeping you from going nuts on like every other area, it's just completely like, uh, you know, different, like the opposite of what I've seen. So it makes me, it definitely makes me happy. Yeah, man. Thank you for that. But I think it's also like, um, you know, I, 
I told you about the the slide I made for my class that had all the band's logos and everything on it. Did mm-hmm. I tell you about that? So one of my like I made a I didn't do this the past couple of semesters. I just made a like about me PowerPoint, you know, to like show, you know, who who I was and like versus just tell them, kind of give them. I used a, the New Year's Eve recap from Dylan's video and I put that as like slide two and I pl- shut the lights off, played it. Then I looked at the kids. I was like, think I'm cool yet? You know, like kind of like a what's up, you know. But for the first time, I looked at a big chunk of my resumes, logos all on one page and it kind of hit like it may not be 90. I've been touring for 16 years straight may not be, you know, two logos a year, you know, 32 logos on a page, but I've worked with most of those logos for a long period of time. And it finally kind of hit that. I was like, okay, I've done okay. You know what I mean? And I think there's something to be said about self-awareness. And like, honestly, for me, it's learning self-gratitude. You know, my childhood... I didn't have the time to learn what self, what gratitude felt like because I had to survive. I had to fight. I had to um, roll my sleeves up and just you know put my head down and get it done. Um, where now you know I'm almost learning at you know the young age of 35 like that that's that's not normal, but it's okay. But now you have some time to actually work on that, you know? Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, listen, I love to work. Like, it's, I've found some people, I, I get calm when I can sit on the couch and work, you know? But um, it's also nice to just not have to for a second, you know? And work on those other aspects. I mean, you heard me make an appointment for knee surgery today. <laughs> That's about three years too late, you know, but that's cool. So, um, I mean, I know we didn't talk too much about fitness, which I mean, it's fine. We talked about like the accountability on the road and all of that stuff, but I feel like as far as getting involved in the music industry of anything is definitely something where if a listener is like, Hey, that, that's definitely something, a route I want to go down and maybe they're not enrolled or students at Berkeley. How <laughs> can, um, how can someone get a hold of you with, with any type of questions that they have? Um, what do we plug like Instagram or something? Whatever you want. Literally, there's no. Yeah, I mean, Instagram at Mike X Finn is probably the easiest way uh, through Connor or through uh, Big Night Fitness. Um, you know, reach out and we'll get connected. And I would say if there's like anything, um, if there's anything to like, there's no. Uh, how do I say this? Like getting involved with touring is a series of different things. Those different things are luck, drive, communication skills, um, being in the right place and right time. I guess that's still luck, but like, um, and also just like want. And I look for that when I'm hiring people, I look for a person that is literally telling me, I don't care what you hire me for. Just please let me have the opportunity and I will prove it to you, you know? Um, so I, I sum that up um, as just saying yes. If there's an opportunity for you to work a co- coat check in a venue, say yes. Because you may, may never know that somebody from the tour 
may just come and want to shoot the shit with you. And before you know it, they're like, hey, that person in Boston was awesome. Or that person at that venue was awesome. We need a person to, you know, stuff coolers on a tour, you know? But I remember that person just being a hard worker. So I would just say, always say yes to any opportunity that comes around and it will pay itself off. And it will also suck, but it's a step towards the end goal, you know? I mean, saying yes to any opportunity and then being able to put your best foot forward, regardless of what the job is. And there's people that I've worked with for and alongside that if someone needed a position, I'd be like, hey, choose this person. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter what the job is. They're going to work hard and Mm -hmm. they're going to figure it out and they're going to get it done. And I think that's something that I think a lot of people around you will do because you don't tell people to work hard. You don't say, hey, you need to do this with the best of your ability. You do stuff with the best of your ability. So that's going to be the standard. And anything less than that is not going to be accepted. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people call it tough love. But leading by example is is why, I mean, I'm sure this entire, why you've had the success you've had and why you continue to have it and can only be just the the best example for someone to, to do. Do as I, you know, not yeah, not like the do as I say, but just like watch what I do and then and then replicate that with whatever you're doing. Yeah, and I think it's the um, having them understand that there's like bigger reasons to why I do things, and you know I always say that there's an open door policy on all my tours, but I've now kind of added to that that you can always come in and you can always go out. Like just because you come in and you 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 want to vent, it, you may not hear the answer you were looking for but I will always have the conversation with you. And I don't yell anymore. I don't, you know, I don't screw people off, tell them to like get out of my room. Um, But I also am like, if I don't understand something or if I don't know something, I'm not afraid to say that anymore. And I think, you know, I call that the power of I don't know. It's actually not a bad thing Um, because I don't get paid and my, my job isn't to know every single thing. Um, more so it's my job to find out if something comes up. And so the countless hour, the countless situations that an artist has been like, what the hell happened tonight? You know, this, this, and this, like, what the, what the fuck, what the fuck? My answer has been, I don't know, but give me 10 minutes and I will go talk to the appropriate people and come back, you know, and come back with a a resolution as well, a resolution option. But, um, Yeah, I I think it's, um, you know, another thing is like you've experienced this firsthand too is like all of my crew, uh, bands, artists, like if they needed, I would be the first one to give them my shirt off the back. And then I would ask questions later. And I think that comes from all the circling it all the way back is to that hardcore community and those friends that I considered family when I needed family. Um, every single one of those people would have given me their shirt off their back and their shoes off their feet um, because we looked out for each other. And we had hard days of friendship, just like we're going to have hard days at work. But that will never change the fact that my main goal is to make sure you're safe, you're fed, you have the tools to do your job to the best of their ability, and you have a, a, a person to come talk to if there's issues. And so some people don't quite understand that or they only um they only see me as a certain way Mm -hmm. but that's something i'll die by you know hell yeah 
Hell yeah. Well, obviously appreciate you coming on here to share a bunch yeah, of... Yeah, look what you built, dude. Well, I didn't really build this. Well, kind of conceptualized. Yeah. Maybe. The team. Yeah. I mean, every, this the position that I'm in. It's funny that, you know, my business partners know who you are. <laughs> and they've known who you are longer than they've known who I am. And, like, that friendship and the connection that you've made with Dylan is the reason why Randy and I met in the first place mm-hmm. was Dylan wanted to prioritize coming to Reebok to train for doing like dinner to play in a show and then Steve Aoki and then all of that mm-hmm. stuff. And so that's what had Randy come in and from there. So I know you, you say you have other people that are always like, you know, I wouldn't be where I am without you, but I genuinely mean that. And I, and I tell you often, and I know sometimes you don't believe me, but <laughs> I believe like, I wouldn't have a lot of this stuff without, um, without yeah, you sticking what, your neck out for me. You know, but I think the, I think what I can't take credit for that. I can't take credit for where you are, but I wouldn't want to open the doors that you walked through and carried on from there um, if I if there if I didn't want to. You know what I mean? Like, I like my job is just to be a bridge builder. Sometimes I don't know what's on the other side of the bridge, but I want to make sure the bridge is fucking sturdy. They know that it, the engineering's been signed off by me. Mm-hmm. And whatever happens on the other side of the bridge, like, sorry, I got to go back to building another bridge. Yeah. And that's like, I think, I don't know, caring about others, caring about your family, caring about your friends, caring about people that you know care about what they do. That's going to kind of create the opportunities from there. I like the way you put that because it's kind of like, you know, when people thank someone for like, thanks for sticking your neck out for me. I think in, in some situations you're like, I wasn't really sticking my neck out for you. I, I gave you an opportunity because I knew you were going to do a good job. Mm-hmm. If I stuck my neck out for you, it's because you sucked, and I was going <laughs> to give you something where you were going to have to try to figure it out. <laughs> so I appreciate that, man. Yeah, for and, sure. Uh, anything else in closing? Um, drink your milk. I don't. Do you drink? I don't. Whole milk. No, I got nothing. Almond milk. Uh, go Bruins. Go Bees. Go Celtics. Go Celts. Go Patriots. Eventually. At some point in time. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, thank you for tuning in. Uh, As always, you can find us at Big Night Fitness on Instagram or head to www.bignightfitness.com to check out all the stuff we have going on, whether it is in-person classes, private training. Uh, We're actually doing a panel tomorrow. Say tomorrow, you're not going to hear this at that point in time. So it's pretty much irrelevant. But with Dylan and actually talking about touring, lifestyle, and health. So we'll put that whole conversation up there too. talk a little bit more about fitness. But... Uh, Thank you, as always, for tuning in. We'll see you next week.